Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows. Well, it looks like today we hit on World War I. Specifically, we'll be talking about the Battle of Lake Tanganyika, which was actually a series of naval battles between December 1915 and July 1916. Most of you have probably never heard of it, and that's not surprising. Let's face it, when you learned about World War I in school, You probably talked about Europe's eastern and western fronts. Perhaps you also touched on what went on in the Balkans and maybe the Middle East, but that's probably it. But remember, World War I was a world war. Fighting took place in many other theaters, and today's topic finds us fighting in the middle of Africa. So let's set the stage. Lake Tanganyika is a long, narrow lake running roughly north to south in Central Africa. On its western shore lies the Democratic Republic of the Congo, with Tanzania on its eastern shore. A small part of Zambia is at its southernmost end, and Burundi touches its northernmost point. It's the second oldest freshwater lake in the world, the second largest by volume, and the second deepest, in all cases, coming in after Siberia's Lake Baikal. It's also the world's longest freshwater lake, measuring 418 miles, with a maximum width of 45 miles. So yeah, a big lake. But what does that have to do with World War I? Well, at the time of the war, it separated the Belgian Congo in the west from German East Africa, obviously in the east. The British also had a presence in the south, with the colony of Rhodesia. When war broke out in August of 1914, the Germans had two warships on Lake Tanganyika. One was the Hedwig von Wiesmann, which I'm just going to call the Hedwig. It was 65 feet long and displaced 60 tons. It was armed with three Maxim 37mm autocannons, commonly called pom-pom guns because of the sound that they made. These could be fired on full automatic, just like a machine gun, but were actually small artillery pieces. They could fire a one-pound high-explosive round out to 4,500 yards and had a 300-round-per-minute maximum rate of fire. Definitely an imposing weapon. The other German warship on the lake was the Kingani. It was 58 feet long and displaced 45 tons. It was armed with one pom-pom gun. In late August of 1914, the Kingani attacked and sank a Belgian steamer. This, coupled with the sinking of a British steamer in November, gave the Germans total control of the lake. They quickly pressed this advantage by invading northern Rhodesia. The British threw them back, but at this point it was quite evident that neither the British nor the Belgians could do much to challenge them. At Lakuga, on the Belgian side of the lake, the Belgians did have the components for a large steamer that they had intended to call the Baron Donis. If this ship could be assembled, it would be larger 
than either the Hedwig or the Kingani. However, the Belgians were afraid that if they started construction, the German ships patrolling the lake would be able to destroy it on shore before it could even be launched. The British had contributed two 12-pound cannons with which to arm it, but since there wasn't much chance of the ship being built, they were instead set up as shore batteries to defend Lakuga. Germany's control of Lake Tanganyika actually gave them control over the whole Central African theater. While the British could mass troops to the south of the lake and the Belgians to the north, neither could hope to drive very far into German East Africa because of the danger of the Germans using the lake to land troops behind their forces and cut off their supply lines. With this being the case, let's jump ahead to April 21st, 1915. On that day, John R. Lee, a veteran of the Second Boer War and a big game hunter, arrived at the Admiralty to meet with First Sea Lord Henry Jackson. Lee had personally seen the German warships on Lake Tanganyika. He also brought information that the Germans were preparing to launch a new warship from their fortified port of Kigoma. It was to be called the Graf von Goetzen. It had been built in a German shipyard, then disassembled and packed up. The components were sent by sea and by rail to Kigoma, where it was being reassembled. It would be 220 feet long and displace close to 1,600 tons. And it would cement Germany's control of the lake, as it would be able to carry up to 900 troops allowing for large raids into Allied territory at pretty much any point on the lakeshore. After delivering this bad news, Lee then gave his idea of how to counter what the Germans were doing. His suggestion was to use motor gunboats. These would be small enough to be transported overland to Lake Tanganyika and be ready to launch upon arrival. This would remove the danger of a possible German attack if the boats had to be assembled on shore. On top of this, Lee said these gunboats should be armed with a cannon that had a range of six or 7,000 yards. This way, the gunboat could hit the Germans from outside the range of the German guns. Plus, being small and quick would allow it to remain out of harm's way, even if the German ships gave chase. Sir Henry liked Lee's idea, and approved it, saying, It is both the duty and the tradition of the Royal Navy, to engage the enemy wherever there is water to float a ship. All that needed to be done now was to find a man to lead the expedition. Sir Henry gave this task to his subordinate, Admiral David Gamble. Gamble put Lieutenant Commander Joffrey Spicer Simpson in charge, and made Lee his second-in-command. Now, Joffrey Spicer Simpson was quite a character. At the time, he was the oldest lieutenant commander in the British Navy, having been passed over for promotion numerous times, mainly because of a rather spotty service record that included a host of mistakes and mishaps. He was known as a braggart, a hothead, and a liar. At the start of the war, his previous ship had been torpedoed and sunk at Ramsgate while he was ashore entertaining guests. Regardless of all that, Spicer Simpson was available, and more importantly, actually willing to lead such an expedition. He spoke both French and German, 
and was familiar with the area, having commanded a survey ship on the Gambia River a number of years earlier. Lee left immediately for South Africa to make preparations for transporting the gunboats overland, and Spicer Simpson set about assembling his crew and finding suitable vessels. He found 27 men, mainly made up of his personal acquaintances and members of the Royal Navy Reserve. They would crew two 40-foot gunboats that had been built before the war for the Greek government, but had never been delivered. Spicer Simpson wanted to christen the boats the dog and cat, but the Admiralty soundly rejected that idea. He then proposed they be called the Tutu and the Mimi, which the Admiralty surprisingly accepted. Years later, Spicer Simpson would explain that these names were a play on how you'd say Bow Wow and Meow in French. With the name settled, he and his crew set to modifying the boat's original designs. Unnecessary items were removed to improve speed, metal plates were added to the fuel tanks, and each boat had a Hotchkiss three-pound cannon mounted in its bow and a Maxim machine gun added to its stern. The Hotchkiss three-pounder was a small 47mm artillery piece that fired three-pound high-explosive rounds. It had a maximum range of about 6,500 yards, so it fit the parameters Lee had suggested. It would definitely be able to hit the Germans while remaining out of their range. With a skilled crew, it could fire 30 rounds a minute, but the way they had to be mounted on these smaller craft required the gunner to be in a kneeling position, which would somewhat slow the rate of fire. When the two gunboats were ready to go, they were tested on the Thames on June 8, 1915. As part of their trials, the Mimi was to fire a practice round from the three-pounder. The shot hit the target, but the recoil threw both the gun and the gunner over the side and into the river. It seems that the gun had not been properly bolted to the deck. Gun and gunner were promptly retrieved, so it's one of those, you know, no harm, no foul. Anyway, while this was going on in England, back on Lake Tanganyika, the Germans launched the completed Graf von Goetzen on that very same day. On June 15th, the Tutu and Mimi were loaded onto a cargo ship for their journey to South Africa. Along with the boats went the crew, all the expedition's equipment, two special cradles that would allow the boats to be moved by railroad flat car, and two trailers that could hold the cradles while traveling over land. A 17-day sea voyage brought the boats to Cape Town, where they were offloaded. And then things got interesting. Realize that these boats would have to cross about 3,000 miles to get to Lake Tanganyika, including traversing a 5,900-foot mountain range. From Cape Town, they went by rail to Fungarumi. From there, the next 150 miles saw the boats being hauled on their trailers, sometimes by steam tractors, sometimes by teams of oxen. At Sankeja, they picked up another train to Bukama. At Bukama, they were launched into Lualaba River, and despite running aground several times, they made it to Kabbalah. From there, it was back onto a train for a quick journey to the Belgian port of Lakuka, where they finally arrived on October 22nd. What a crazy journey! 
you know, the moving of these two gunboats has to be one of the most eccentric and strangest operations to be attempted during World War I. But there was simply no other way to get this done, and the bottom line is, they actually did it. Meanwhile, let's see what the Germans had been up to. Captain Gustav Zimmer was the German naval commander on the lake, and had the Graf von Goetzen as his flagship. By the way, from now on, I'm just going to call it the Goetzen. Lieutenant Job Rosenthal commanded the Kingani, and Lieutenant Job Odebrecht commanded the Hedwig. At the time, Zimmer's biggest concern was if the Belgians were going to attempt to construct and launch the Berendonis. While it wouldn't necessarily be a threat to the Goetzen, it might hinder the Germans' freedom of movement on the lake. It's not known if Zimmer had any knowledge at this time that the British were preparing to launch their own gunboats. It's highly unlikely. With this uncertainty, Zimmer sent Rosenthal and the Kingani to carry out reconnaissance of Lakuga Harbor. They made several passes and could see that new slipways were under construction to the south. This was where Spicer Simpson intended to launch and moor his boats, but obviously Rosenthal didn't know this. To try to gain more information, the Kingani returned on the morning of December 1, 1915, and tried to approach the harbor. The shore batteries spotted them and fired several rounds, forcing them to withdraw. They returned the following night, and Rosenthal swam ashore to get a first-hand look at things. He was able to examine the new slipways under construction, found the British camp, and saw the Mimi and Tutu on their rail cars. He also saw that the Belgians had not even begun construction on the Berendonis. Rosenthal realized that the major threat to the Germans was these two British boats, and he could tell by the progress of the slipways that they'd be ready to launch soon. He tried to swim back to the Kingani, but couldn't find it in the dark. When he got tired, he swam back to shore, with the intention of trying to hide out with the hope that the Kingani would return the following night. Unfortunately for Rosenthal, a Belgian patrol spotted him and took him prisoner. The slipways were completed by the third week in December, and the Tutu was launched on December 22nd, with the Mimi following the following day. By Christmas Eve, both boats were fueled, armed, and ready to go. Meanwhile, the Germans had assumed that Rosenthal's failure to return to the Kingani meant he was either captured or dead. Consequently, Zimmer placed Sub-Lieutenant Jung in charge of the Kingani and ordered it to return to Lukuga to try to gather more information about the slipways that had been seen earlier in the month. At 0600 hours on December 26th, Boxing Day, the Kingani was spotted by Spicer Simpson from shore as he conducted morning prayers. The crews were quickly scrambled, and the Mimi and Tutu set off in hot pursuit. Jung was surprised to find himself pursued by two British boats, and ordered the Kingani's speed to be increased. The problem for the Kingani, though, was that its main gun was located forward, so it couldn't fire on the pursuing boats. The much faster Mimi and Tutu quickly closed the gap, and when they came within range, opened up with their three-pounders. One round took out the Kingani's main gun, and killed Jung and two petty officers in the process. 
After a few more direct hits, the Kingani's engineers struck their colors. This brief 11-minute encounter gave Spicer Simpson his first victory, a captured German ship, and no casualties among his men. The Kingani was repaired and refitted. Because it was a larger craft, its main gun was moved to the stern, and a larger 12-pounder, taken from the Lakuga shore battery, was mounted on its bow. It was then taken into service as the HMS Fifi. According to Spicer Simpson, Fifi was a play on how you'd say tweet-tweet in French, and was suggested by a Belgian officer's wife who kept a small pet bird. Anyway, the Admiralty was quite impressed with Spicer Simpson's actions, and promoted him to the rank of commander, finally! He also received a message of appreciation from King George V. It was not until mid-January that Zimmer sent the Hedwig to investigate the disappearance of the Kingani. By this point, Spicer Simpson had quite a little flotilla at his disposal. Apart from the Mimi, Tutu, and Fifi, he had a repaired Belgian vessel, renamed the HMS Venger. There were also two Belgian-controlled vessels that could provide him support. The motorized barge Dixton, which was armed with two small cannons, and a whaleboat with an outboard motor. Odebrecht sailed the Hedwig as close to Lacuga as he dared, but made it a point to avoid the shore batteries that were assumed to have sunk the Kingani. He saw nothing of interest and left the area. The Hedwig was ordered back to Lacuga on February 8, 1916. The plan was to again reconnoiter the shore, and then to meet up with Zimmer on the Goatzen the following day. The Hedwig was spotted early in the morning of the 8th, and Spicer Simpson sent out the Mimi and Fifi, along with the Belgian Dixton and whaleboat. The Tutu remained in port undergoing repairs. Odebrecht saw the four boats coming at him and made a sharp turn to port. The pursuing vessels gave chase. Spicer Simpson was commanding from the Fifi and opened fire with his 12-pounder. The recoils actually stopped the Fifi dead in the water for a second with each shot. Remember, the Fifi, although larger than the other British boats, was still pretty small to be carrying a 12-pound gun. As the Fifi worked to get back up to speed, the Mimi came flying past, blazing away at the Hedwig with her three-pounder. The Hedwig's stern guns didn't have the range of Mimi's weapons, so they couldn't return fire. Odebrecht decided to come about to try to hit Mimi with his heavier, bow-mounted cannon. The two boats then began to circle each other, trading shots, but unable to score any hits. By this point, the Fifi had caught back up. Spicer Simpson was down to just three shells for his 12-pounder. The Fifi went to take a shot, but its gun jammed on their third-to-last round. In the time it took to clear it, the Hedwig was again starting to pull away. Now with only two shells left, the Fifi fired and hit the Hedwig's hull low enough that it started to cause the boat to take on water. The Fifi's final shot hit the engine room, bursting the boiler and killing seven men. As fire began to spread throughout the vessel, Captain Odebrecht set scuttling charges and gave the order to abandon ship. As the Hedwig sank, Odebrecht and 19 other survivors were picked up by the British. When the Hedwig failed to meet up with Zimmer the next morning, 
he sailed the goats into Lakuga to see what was going on. As soon as it was seen offshore, the British crews raced for their craft, but Spicer Simpson called them back. He realized that none of his boats were big enough to tangle with the goats. Shortly after this, Spicer Simpson left Lakuga and went to Stanleyville in search of a ship that would be big enough to take on the Goatson. He actually found such a vessel, the St. George, which belonged to the British Council at Banana. Spicer Simpson had the ship disassembled and hauled overland with the idea of reassembling it at Lake Tanganyika. But by the time Spicer Simpson returned in May, the German position on the lake had greatly deteriorated. The Belgians were on the verge of capturing Kigoma on the German side, and the British were pushing north toward Bismarckburg. Reassembling the St. George was put on hold, and Spicer Simpson was tasked with providing naval support for the land operations. On June 5th, the Mimi, Tutu, Fifi, and Venger arrived off Bismarckburg. Spicer Simpson saw that the harbor was defended by a fort, so he decided not to attack and withdrew to Katuta. This proved to be a poor decision on his part because it allowed a number of German troops to slip away from Bismarckburg using small sailboats. The British ground forces were furious with Spicer Simpson for not attacking and allowing the Germans to escape, and he was further embarrassed to find that the fort's guns were actually wooden dummies. While this was going on, the British had given the Belgians four Type 827 float planes with which to attack the Goatsen at Kigoma Harbor. The Belgians made several bombing raids, but had no success. And it didn't matter anyway. Unbeknownst to the Belgians and British, the Germans had removed the Goatsen's armaments to be used by their ground troops. All that was left were wooden dummies to maintain the illusion of a heavily armed ship. On July 28th, Allied forces captured Kigoma as part of the Tabora Offensive, but the Goatsen was long gone. The Germans had sailed it to the southern part of Kigoma Bay. There, they thoroughly greased its engines, filled it with sand, and carefully scuttled it in about 65 feet of water. They were so careful when they did this, just in case they ever needed to raise the ship to make use of it again. With the scuttling of the Goatsen, one can say that the Battle of Lake Tanganyika came to an end. From this point onward, the Anglo-Belgian alliance had complete control of the lake. Spicer Simpson and his crew returned to Britain, where he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. Of course, he was also reprimanded for some of his antagonistic behavior toward his Belgian allies, and was not given another command. Was he really that big a jerk toward the Belgians? Well, perhaps not, because they appointed him a commander of the Order of the Crown and awarded him the Croix la Guerre. After the war, the Belgians raised the Goatsen and towed it to Kigoma. Unfortunately, a storm hit causing it to sink again. In 1921, the British, under their mandate for Tanganyika, raised the Goatsen yet again. To their surprise, the Germans' thorough greasing of the engines preserved them remarkably well and made it that much easier to make repairs. The ship was renamed the Liemba 
and was returned to service on May 16, 1927, acting as a passenger ship along the eastern shore of Lake Tanganyika. By the way, the ship still exists and still carries passengers. It is currently owned and operated by the Marine Services Company of Tanzania. How cool is that? Now before we wrap this up, perhaps some of you are thinking that bits and pieces of the story seem to sound almost familiar, like maybe you've heard them somewhere before. Well, if you're into classic movies, that may be the case. The exploits of the British gunboats on Lake Tanganyika really captured the public imagination and were adapted by writer C.S. Forrester in a 1935 novella. This, in turn, was made into a motion picture starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, called The African Queen. But talking about the book and film, and how they differed from the real-life events, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, and check out some of my other episodes. And I... Very much look forward to talking with you again in two weeks.